Well, welcome again to City Life. It's good to see everybody here. Uh, it's, it's powerful to me to be back on a weekend like this weekend because I've been doing life with David, who was just up here for well over a decade. And it's the first time the Godwin Party of Four have been here, which is awesome, right? I, I, Ethan's up there uh, doing sound for the first time. I, I was youth pastor when Ethan aged into the youth group, and now he's doing mic switches during the worship clothes like a veteran. So uh, shout out to Ethan as well. And then shout out to... Everybody here who was standing up becoming a member at City Life Newport News, uh, what's awesome, you can get up for them as well, is to be back and not recognize any of you, right? To see the growth that's happening here as we're over there in Suffolk. If you took Discover City Life, you know we're one church in two locations. So Fred is over there in Suffolk. I'm here in Newport News. We both preach live sermons each weekend and uh, sometimes we're on different topics, but maybe you know we've been doing this Why Do Be series at both campuses ever since Legacy Weekend. So if it's your first time tonight or you haven't been coming for a while, we've been working through really our vision statement, which is to build the church Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. And so this comes from three declarative statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels. And in Suffolk, we've worked a question into each one of these statements. So first we have why, the mission statement, which is in Luke 19, 10, where Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. So the question we asked ourselves is my why, Jesus is why. Is my reason for living the reason he came. And then secondly, we see be, which is, or excuse me, do. Yeah, I've been preaching this for a month. Do, which is build my church in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And in Suffolk, we dug into Acts 1, where Jesus, after the resurrection and before the ascension, was preparing his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit and build and be the church. And we asked ourselves, are his last concerns my first concern? His concern for the church, is it my concern with my life? And then lastly, we hit on B, which comes from John 13, where Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And I know at both campuses, we tied this into our praxis model, our discipleship model, the pathways and the virtues. And the question that we asked ourselves in Suffolk is if the whole church looked like me, what would the church look like? What would the church look like if everybody looked like me? Would the pathways be present? Would it be a prayerful church or a prayerless church? Would it be a generous church that stewards well or would it be a, a broke down church, right? We're asking those questions. What would the church look like if everybody looked like me? And because I'm a former art major and I love painting, the picture in that sermon was that every day we're painting a portrait of something and somebody. We as Christians, which literally means little Christs, we're supposed to be painting portraits of Jesus where we can say like Paul, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Copy me as I'm copying a portrait of Jesus Christ. And every day, with our decisions, with our conversations, with our actions, we're laying down more paint. The tone of our conversations chooses the tone on the canvas. And, we're, and every day we're painting more and more a portrait. So the question is, whose portrait are you painting? Whose portrait are you painting? It was D.L. Moody that said, out of 100 men, 99 will never read the Bible, but they'll read the Christian. Yeah. And then it was Gandhi that said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So the question is, whose portrait are you painting? Does it look like Jesus and his love and his virtue? 
And when it comes to, to portraits of Jesus Christ, there, there is a very famous one. It's called the Solomon head or, or the head of Christ. And this is, maybe outside of Da Vinci's Last Supper, the most recognizable, most reproduced painting of Jesus there's ever been. Uh, Warner Solomon painted this in 1940, and since then, 500 million copies have been printed, copied, distributed into the world. So one scholar interviewed hundreds of people trying to understand why this portrait became so popular. Talked to hundreds of people about their feelings for the painting, what they thought about it, and one woman put it that the picture appealed to her simply because it showed just what Jesus looked like. To which I throw a flag and say, time out. <laughs> I'm throwing a challenge flag. That looks more like a Midwestern college grad than a Middle Eastern man that was born, raised, ministered, and died in the Middle East. But you'll see all variations of Jesus painted. You'll find dreadlock Jesus. I went to India to pick up my son who I adopted. There's Indian portrayals of Jesus. Why do we do this? Because painting our face on Jesus makes him relatable makes him approachable, and the familiarity and tenderness of this Solomon head, which looks like an old Olin Mills portrait that I actually get when I was a kid, right? That's what makes it so uh, attractive to our culture. But I bring all this up to, to pivot to tonight's sermon and beg the question, are we being made more and more into the image of God, or are we shaping God into our own image? And I'm not talking about paintings. I'm talking about the way we live as Christians, Right, the way we handle the Bible or move the goalposts on its truth in a post-truth society. Are we being made more like God or are we making him more like us? There's an old song lyric from decades ago that said, we've put a mirror in the sky. We look up and see ourselves magnified. Our God looks like you and I, we've put a mirror in the sky. You know, I wasn't just an art major, I was a double major. I also majored in English. So I love stories. I love tales, I love epics, whether it's a movie or a book. And the ancient Greeks were some of the best storytellers that the world has ever known. Because they were thinkers, they were philosophers, they would study man, and then the stories and epics that they wrote would take their observations of man and amplify it onto their gods and their deities and all the things that would happen in their epics. So that's where we get maybe a character you've heard of, Narcissus. Many of you are not familiar with this story that kind of rings a bell because in our English language, we get the word narcissistic from that very story because the truth of the tale resonates through history. So Narcissus was this good-looking guy, like David, right? Good-looking guy. He scorned all lovers, right, until there's no mirrors in this day. He first sees his reflection in a body of water, and he becomes so enamored with his reflection, so obsessed with it that he drowns in his pursuit. Right? And you, you giggle listening to that. But it is an observation about mankind and the human condition that's happened throughout our existence. That we love mirrors, reflections, people that look like us, think like us, talk like us, dress like us. We love people that look like us. We don't just put a mirror in the sky. We build walls all around us made of mirrors. We live surrounded by them. And the Greeks knew this. They understood this. That's why we get the tale of narcissists. And ultimately, narcissism is what's at the root of all the other isms and divisions in our cultures. 
Whether it's racism, sexism, or classism, all these divisions are rooted in this idea that I want to be around, surrounded by people that look just like me. And one of these isms is tribalism, so prevalent in our day and throughout history, which is us and them. Whether it's blue lives or black lives matter or black and white or red and blue come election time or it's childish stuff. I don't know about here, but in, in Suffolk, there is a great debate between Dunkin' Donuts coffee and Starbucks coffee. We got a lot of people from the, the Northeast there. I'm like, who drinks Dunkin' Donuts? But I might get slapped if I say that in Suffolk because there's that tribalism, right? There's Marvel in D.C. There's, speaking of Boston, Red Sox and Yankees, all these ways that we identify ourselves by inclusion into one group and excluding other people. We're social organisms that seem hardwired to make dichotomies in us and them, to shape our identity with dividing barriers. We like to build our barriers with mirrors, and we surround ourselves with those that reflect us. So tonight, we're talking about our moment as a church. Throughout these weeks, we've talked about our message, we've talked about our mission, but every church, intentionally or unintentionally, has a moment. Like every family has a culture. We have a moment when somebody shows up, worships with us, and leaves. And what we vocalize this as for decades, or not decades, but the past decade, is that you are family from the first hello. We are a welcoming church. Right, when I went to plant the Suffolk campus with my plant team, I knew I wanted to take the DNA that we'd had here in Newport News of being a welcoming church, and I wanted to see that in Suffolk because it's a part of who we are. It's a part of our culture. We are family from the first hello. I always think of 1 Thessalonians 2.8 where Paul says, I, I loved you so much that it was my honor not just to share the gospel with you, but our lives as well. There should be a sharing of lives as a church, which is like a family, a family of faith. But what about those that don't look like us, think like us, dress like us, vote like us? What do we do with those people when we're shoulder to shoulder, called to do life with them? Romans 15.7 gives us the motto for our moment, which is accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. If you go home with anything tonight, write down one thing, memorize one verse, let it be Romans 15, 7. And that accept, that's bigger than like moving your purse so somebody can sit in the same pew with you, right? It's bigger than just uh, worshiping next to somebody on a Saturday. That word accept in the Greek speaks to brother and sister. Again, it speaks to family, being family from the first hello. And one of the things we've realized as a church ministering for well over a decade now in a culture with so many lines in the sand and so many divisions is that being family from the first hello is bigger than just being welcome on a weekend. It's the reality of 1 Thessalonians 2.8 that we, we love each other so much we don't just share the gospel with each other, we share our lives with each other. And we do that in all our diverse differences. We're going to dig into that tonight. But it's also bigger than the present. Right? In order to understand our moment, we have to look back in history. In a way, we have to look back in order to move forward. And narcissism, tribalism, all these different isms, they're not unique to now. They're not unique to America. They're not unique to the church. It's been throughout human history. So you even look at the early church in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was so full of divisions. Racism, classism, sexism, all these isms existed in the Roman Empire. And not just in the Roman Empire, but in the early church, which existed within this empire. You know, when Paul in Ephesians 
speaks of the dividing wall of hostility that Jesus struck down. Right? He's talking about the power of sin right? that sets us in opposition with God. But he's also talking about in the temple, the temple that the Jews worshipped in, there was a wall where if you were a Gentile, it basically said Jews only past here. It said if you go past this barrier, it's on your head. We can kill you. Can you imagine coming up to the church tonight? It says Jews only or whites only or males only. That's the kind of division that was present back then. Right? That's the kind of division that the gospel melted down to, to tear down these walls and barriers that had existed for centuries. The first Christians in Acts saw themselves as a multicultural family that destroyed walls of hostility and hatred through the blood of Jesus. It's what inspired Paul to write the, the verse Galatians 3.28 where he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ask any historian. The church was the first organization to take male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and put them all on equal footing. All on equal footing. This was the revolution at the heart of the revival we see in early Acts. And if you go through history, work your way through history, Maybe the greatest revival we've seen outside of early Acts is the Azusa Street Revival in L.A., which again rivaled anything we've seen since the early Acts, the first century. And it was led by a young black pastor named William Seymour. He was the one-eyed son of a former slave, and he was leading this movement at the turn of the 20th century. There's all kinds of stories. You should study it up if you've never read up on it. But maybe my favorite is when he first went to California, right? He's like, I'm going to minister. And he preaches at a church, and he preaches on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, prayer languages, and they locked him out. <laughs> they literally kicked him out of the church, locked the doors. Just like, all right, what next? And he started leading prayer meetings. Started leading prayer meetings. And the Holy Spirit fell. Crowds and masses would gather for prophecies and healings. 1,500 people daily would fit in this dilapidated building with eight-foot ceilings, right, not a place you would pick to host a revival, but they would show up morning till midnight to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, which again was sparking prophecies and miracles and healings. But you know, when I study this, maybe the greatest miracle to me is that this revival was expressed across ethnic lines, generational lines, gender lines. It was a priesthood of all believers. There were men and women prophesying. There were blacks and whites in leadership. And this is again at the turn of the 20th century. Right when racism still ran rampant, right when the women's suffrage movement was just getting rolling, and yet we see this at this revival. But what I think less people are familiar with is what ended the revival. And William Seymour invited a white pastor from the Midwest by the name of Charles Fox Parham. He was invited to preach. And instead of offering encouragement, offering direction, he saw what he considered the great sin of America, which was the intermingling of races. So what he did is he, he called up from the pulpit a lot of things that I won't repeat from this pulpit. And then he went across the street to open his own re revival for whites only. And, of course, God didn't bless that. Let's be serious. That didn't last. But he had driven his wedge of division, and more and more pressure got applied to that, to where the white pastors that were a part of this black church of God in Christ went off to plant their own churches, all white congregations. I share that because no movement, no revival, no church is immune from our flesh's tendency to surround ourselves with what makes us comfortable, mirrors. People that 
think and live and look like us. It's why division can creep in and cripple the greatest of revivals. You know, the church today will cry out for revivals like that one, but we don't weigh the history of division and its presence today. You know, I think we so often think of self-centered as me and you. Like, self-centered, I'm about me, but I think there's just a variety of self-centeredness where we are in the present, and anything that happened before me, I don't see how it could affect us now. But there's so much rooted in our culture that still affects us today. Still can sow seeds of division, even in a healthy church, if we're not careful. And if we're, we got to be careful. Because, again, this happened at the turn of the 20th century. All of this, I feel, is even escalated in the 21st century. Why? Because technology. What's great about technology is I can follow news sources from India where I adopted my son. I can hear voices from the church in Africa, which is thriving. I can follow all of this globally. But at the same time, I can carefully curate what voices I'm hearing from. I can follow. I can mute. I can unfollow. And what I do is I I can curate the voices I hear from. And in a culture where you seek your happiness above all else, we don't want to hear from voices that disagree with us. What doesn't make me happy in the moment is somebody disagreeing with my heartfelt convictions. Right? So, so often we'll mute those, we'll unfollow those, and what happens is we build an echo chamber. You know, the story of Narcissus, there's a, a, a character I was less familiar with, and her name was Echo. And so she was talkative, loquacious, right? She would interrupt people just to talk. She wouldn't even answer the questions. She'd just keep talking and interrupting. Maybe you know somebody like that. Don't look at your spouse if it's them. But she interrupted Zeus's wife, Hera, to the point Hera finally cursed her to only be able to repeat what other people would say. She could only repeat what somebody had just said. Other than that, she couldn't talk. And so she was wandering, right, under this curse, under this spell, and she comes up and sees Narcissus. Narcissus still obsessed with his reflection. Narcissus still looking down at the reflection of himself obsessed. And he begins saying, you know, you're beautiful. You're, you're this, you're that. And she's repeating it. And he begins to think that the reflection is speaking to him. And this is what causes his demise. This is what causes him chasing that reflection to the point that he would drown. Again, this speaks to our human tendencies. We set up echo chambers because it affirms us. It makes us comfortable. But what it does to our spirituality and what it ultimately does to us is harmful. You know, I share the story of narcissists. I share the story of echo because when our family of faith is contingent on people that look like us and sound like us, Ultimately, we begun worshiping ourselves, not God, not God. And I've truly begun to have this appreciation for the church in our modern era. Because, again, in our modern era, it's so easy to do this, build echo chambers, surround ourselves with people that think just like us, hear from people that think just like us. A healthy church where people from all different backgrounds are worshiping God together will take your echo chamber and smash it. It will take your hall of mirrors and demo the entire hall. And ultimately, that destruction, it's a healing and it's a gift because you're not going to be able to take those with you to heaven. Right? You look back at history, but you look towards the future, towards eternity. What does the apostle John see in Revelations 4? Here's people crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. But the context of that in Revelations 4, 1 says, after this I looked. 
And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, in our church culture, I can't speak for the whole world, but in our church culture in the West, I feel like our, our focus can get so caught up on me getting to heaven. Right? My assurance of salvation and me getting to heaven. But if you look at what Jesus taught us to pray in the Our Father, it's not God get me out of here. It's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? By the work of the cross, right, by the blood of Jesus, I have assurance of salvation. I don't have to stress me getting to heaven, and that prayer would tell me I should be stressing even more heaven coming to earth than me escaping to heaven. But you look at Revelations 4, where every nation, tribe, people, and where there's diversity, right? In our culture, it's pretty easy for us to go most of our lives without spending significant time with people significantly different than us. But in Revelations 4, you're going to be spending eternity with people significantly different than you. Our prayer should be that heaven comes to earth and our churches and our moment and our church should strive to be one that reflects the future we're going to see in heaven. So we've come to realize family from our first hello means more than a smile and a handshake and feeling welcomed upon your visit. It means embracing diversity, not uniformity, because that's not, no longer diversity. Unity amidst diversity. Worshiping and doing life with people, again, that don't look like you, talk like you, uh, uh, vote like you, dress like you. They might be entirely different than you, but they love Jesus, and we worship him together. It means being in a place where people from all backgrounds can step forward together to follow Christ together. And we're being comfortable where you are comfortable with the church that will take your echo chambers and hall of mirrors and just smash them and get rid of them. Because, again, that's a gift. The church is no echo chamber. It should be a diversity chamber. There's an author, Christina Cleveland, and she wrote a book called, I think it was called Disunity in Christ. But the quote from that book is that people can meet God within their cultural context. But in order to follow God, they must cross into other cultures because that's what Jesus did in the incarnation in the cross. Discipleship is cross-cultural. When we meet Jesus around people who are just like us and then continue to follow Jesus with people who are just like us, we stifle our growth in Christ and open ourselves up to a world of division. However, when we're rubbing elbows in Christian fellowship with people who are different from us, we can learn from each other and grow more like Christ. What she's saying is, is to get comfortable in a hall of mirrors or an echo chamber is what's going to stifle your growth and ultimately hurt the church, and it keeps us from following Christ. She says in order to follow God, they must cross into other cultures because that's what Jesus did in the incarnation and the cross. You know, Jesus came to his first disciples and says, follow me, follow me. And many of his first followers were fishermen, blue-collar workers, right, barely getting by, supporting their family with the fish they caught. These guys were working hard, long hours, and they were under Roman oppression. Again, mind you, the, the Roman government is over this entire region. Violent oppression. And so you've got these fishermen, and when they get their income, there are tax collectors. Right? And these people basically volunteer to help the Romans collect taxes, and they get their income. They survive by charging interest. 
So there were tax collectors that were Jews, right? And they were essentially aligning themselves with the Roman government and robbing their own people. You can imagine the kind of things that these disciples as fishermen thought about tax collectors. They're good for nothing. They're worthless, beyond redemption, scum of the earth, right? So these fishermen go to follow Jesus. And in all their prayer circles, all their small groups, all their Bible studies, right there in that circle is Levi, right? No, also known as Matthew, a tax collector. A tax collector that Jesus called to follow him. And we see that from the beginning, from the very first disciples who followed Jesus' command to follow, following Christ and reconciliation have been inseparable. Inseparable. Our impulse is tribalism, to surround ourselves with other fishermen. More mirrors, echo chambers, but following Jesus will always take you across lines in the sand in the name of love. Jesus lived a lifestyle that destroyed tribalism's cry of us and them, or us versus them, and he replaced it with me for them. Right? If there was a, those people in that culture, those were the people that Jesus was pulling up chairs with, to eat dinner with. But why isn't the church in our culture living the same way? There's a stat I've shared in Suffolk multiple times. I'm probably sick of hearing it, so I'll share it again here. It was found last year that 82% in a massive survey of thousands of people, 82% of American church-going Christians don't open their Bible outside of the weekend service. So translation, 82% of people aren't opening their Bible. They're not reading their Bible. The people that are going to church calling themselves Christians. But then you compare that to the diet of media that we ingest every day and every week. It's not surprising that we look less like Christ and more like our culture that makes money off of and lives off division. Whether you're talking about cable news or sports center, right? They need a debate, right? They need division. If there isn't some, they'll make some because that's how they make a profit. It's ratings fueled by division. And so often when there's a debate, whoever's on the other side of the debate, those people become characters, they become straw men, right, to where all progressives are fill in the blank. All conservatives are fill in the blank. Everybody that voted for Trump is fill in the blank. All immigrants are fill in the blank. Just like in Jesus' day, it would have been all tax collectors are fill in the blank. But Jesus always calls us to see beyond our broken cultural characters and see one another's common humanity again. But we're American church. We're we spend way more time consuming media than we ever do in the word. And our, we just lean the wrong direction. Right? We're an American church. And it shows in the way we love, in the dividing walls that we let stay standing in our lives. It shows in the lines of the sand that we operate from. The us's and them. <laughs> Steph and I, we adopted Raj from India almost three years ago now. But it was a four-year process. And uh, it was an international adoption from the start. We had to pivot from Ethiopia to India for circumstances we couldn't control. But uh, it was always an international adoption. And when you're walking through stuff like an international adoption or brain surgeries, like people have questions, right? They, they've never experienced this before, so they, they're curious. And so people would ask questions about this international adoption. <coughs> Sorry. And a question that I got multiple times, enough to count on one hand, but it was people in the church, and the question would be, well, why don't you adopt from your own soil? Or why don't you take care of your own? <laughs> Some of them got the courteous short answer, right? 
But again, these were, these were people I knew were Christians, right? So some of them got the longer confrontational answer, where it's like, my love is not based on proximity or politics, but on common humanity. And you can take your sophisticated excuses for loving or not loving and throw them back in hell to burn. I didn't go that far. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Um, I have a filter, right? But that's my thought. You'll know God's grace and the gospel's effect on your life by how you define your own. Who you share a dinner table with or a lunch table at work. Who you'll let your daughter or son marry or not marry. Who you'll consider adopting or you won't consider adopting because that, they're those people over there. The grace we're called to demonstrate always replaces exclusion with embrace. Tribalism always creates our people and those people, us and them, inclusion and exclusion. But grace takes exclusion and replaces it with embrace. Everybody wants to diagnose the American church and, and present a path forward. But I tell you tonight, the church doesn't need more agreement from pew to pew on the hot topics of the day and all the things being debated on the news. We don't need more agreement from pew to pew. We need more grace flowing from pew to pew. Where somebody who thinks that Donald Trump is the man for the moment in this nation Right? And somebody that would have loved to see Donald Trump out of office three weeks ago can stand together shoulder to shoulder and worship God together. Because newsflash, no matter who you voted for last election, you'll probably be worshiping in heaven with somebody that voted differently. You might as well start now. Right? Might as well start doing life with them now because you're going to be spending eternity with them. Where if you grew up in Hampton Roads, you've never known anything but Hampton Roads. Or you're somebody that immigrated from the other side of the border last week, you can worship together. You might as well start now because you're going to be doing it in heaven. There are no lines in the sand, red, blue, black, white at the foot of the cross. There's no lines in the sand at the foot of the cross. And the Bible calls for unity. And unity by its nature happens amidst diversity. It's not uniformity, but found in agreement over all of life's, or found in agreement on all of life's details. It's found when we have grace over our distinct differences. And <laughs> race and politics are huge. It's why we've spent entire sermon series on the subject in the past. It's why I've spent so much time tonight looking at those because, again, those are two tools that the enemy uses to sow division again and again and again throughout history. We have to be mindful of them. But as I was prepping for this sermon, you know, I felt that there were three ways that our mirrors can get in the way of loving people and loving our, our own family of faith that are less common, maybe a little more insidious, and slide their way through the back door. And the first is simply maturity and immaturity. Right, maybe a mature believer and a new believer. Carlo Corretto has a great quote where he says, God loves what is not yet, what is still to come to birth. What we love in a person is what already is, virtue, beauty, courage, and hence our love is self-interested and fragile. But God loving what is not yet and putting faith in us continually begets us since love is what begets Love is what helps us emerge from our darkness and draws us to the light. And this is such a fine thing to do that God invites us to do the same. God loves what is not yet. God loves people that are still being shaped, are still rough around the edges. Might go out here tonight cussing the parking lot. God loves them, right? God loves them. If we're to seek and save the lost, right, to, to live out our why as a church, to build the church, reach people, uh, reach people for Christ, we got to be a place where they can come to church and feel loved, feel the love of God, which loves what is not yet. How many of you, when you were coming up, had the, 
door frame. That's what we did it on. Maybe a wall where every year you'd mark your height. You grow. Haven't done that with Raj yet. I don't know if that means I'm failing as a parent. I need to do growing kids God's way. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I had that as a kid. Every year, maybe every six months, every quarter. I can't remember. But my parents never turned to me and said, hey, you're, you're 37 inches tall. Guess what? You're never going to ride a roller coaster. You're never going to be able to play basketball. You're too short. You're out of luck, man. No, they never said that because they understood I was still growing. All right, there is a liberation in the realization that we're all still growing. We're all unfinished products. Our families understood this. May we as a family of faith understand that as well and show each other the same patience that God showed us. I was a stinking mess when I started going to church at 21. It took me a long time to grow. May we show the same patience God showed us. But then as you grow, right, you develop passions. And passions can be divisive. And maybe you think, how? How can, a, how can people's passions be divisive within the church? But as a pastor pastoring people and having conversations with people, I've had conversations with people where it's like, how can, how can they not have the same passion I have for, say, like global missions, funding missionaries, going on mission trips? How can, how can they not have the same passion that I do? You could fill in that box with all kinds of different things, but the idea is that there's something wrong with them because they need to be awakened to the urgency of this passion that I have. Again, you could fill in that blank with all kinds of things. Why don't they have the same passion for social justice? Why don't they have the same passion for the homeless, those in prison? Why don't they have the same passion for people that are trafficked? If Steph and I were mindful of this, we'd be like, why, why isn't everybody's heart broken for the hundreds of millions of orphans in the world? Why aren't we all adopting? Right? If, we, if we just walked down this road, we can get frustrated with our brothers and sisters, and bitterness can creep in. But if we're a family, family from the first hello, right? you might have a brother that was an artist, a sister that played basketball, another brother that liked music. There's a diversity of passions. And guess what? That is a gift to the church. Because here's another new slash, everybody can't do everything. So when there is a diversity of passions in the church, sometimes the enemy can use that as, as, as division and sow seeds of bitterness, but really it is a gift to the church. It's a gift to the family. And in the same way where in our families there was a diversity of passions, there's a diversity of passions here, and it's a beautiful thing. I believe God loves it. And then the third and last is between churches. We've realized that family doesn't just speak to this church family, but to capital C church, the church in this region, the church around the world, we're a family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe you'd say, duh, but there are many churches that live in isolation or that would see a church up the street and see competition. All right, those are, there are churches that would see churches of other denominations and say, yeah, I'll pray for you, but I'm not partnering with you, right? Because there's different beliefs on, on lesser doctrines. But reaching a city, right, forget reaching the world, even reaching our region, our city, for the kingdom of God, seeing revival, it's going to be the work of churches, right? Churches that partner together, link arms together, serve together, love the community together. You know, sharing a building is a dream that we've had for so long. It's so beautiful to come here in Newport News or office in Newport News and see different pastors. Right? I went down to, to get ice for my iced coffee, and, and, and Pastor Mengi is in there cleaning out his mug. John Ware's wife is setting up for a life group. I'm like, this was our dream, right, to have all these churches together, rubbing shoulders, building the kingdom together. There's churches where that's a nightmare. Trust me. <laughs> There's churches where that is a nightmare. 
And in Suffolk, we partner with a Lutheran church. Right? There's churches of different belief systems that maybe don't agree with us on everything meeting here. But I think God loves this. Because you know what? We're going to be worshiping together in heaven. <laughs> Might as well share a space here and now. Because we're going to be sharing space eternity, eternally in heaven. But to, to land this plane, again, the Greeks philosophized and tried to understand the heart of mankind, and they included this in their stories. But the apostle Paul, right, he understood the human heart, and I would say on another level because he had revelation from the Holy Spirit, and he included this in his epistles. That's why in almost every epistle, he includes a statement on division in all its forms, tribalism, racism, sexism, classism. Like, I was studying for this sermon, so right, I had to collect them all. Again, Galatians 3.28 is probably my favorite. That there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To the church in Corinth, he wrote 1 Corinthians 12.13. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Colossians 3.11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. To the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 2.14, he says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And then you get to Philippians, and you start digging, and it's hard to find like a crystal clear statement on division or correcting racism or sexism, all these other things he's talking about in these letters, and it begs the question, why? Why is it glaringly missing from Philippians? And first off, Philippians is the only letter in Scripture where Paul is writing a letter to a church, and he's not correcting something they're teaching or something they're doing. Like Philippians, they, they understood what a maturing church should look like and, and how they should walk. So then the question is, okay, how did they get this? What's happening? How did, what was the key? And I don't think it's in the letter Philippians itself, but if you go back to Acts 16, where the church was planted, I think we get a taste of why. Because in Acts 16, the first person you meet is, is a woman named Lydia. She's Asian. She's wealthy. She's basically a fashionista. And when Paul meets her, she's, she's hosting basically a Bible study next to the water where maybe they were doing baptisms. I don't know, but... But he walks up on that, and, and the way he shares Jesus and the gospel with her is intellectually because she's a thinker. So the second person we're introduced to from this church in Philippi is a, is a trafficked slave girl. Unlike the independent Lydia, she's been impoverished and exploited. She's Greek. And when they meet her, she's out of her mind. She's possessed. Right? She's not saved by intellect or, or argument, but Paul rebukes the spirit, and she's saved. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first two. The third we meet again in Acts 16 in the same city is a Roman jailer. Probably not rich, probably not poor. He's a middle class, blue collar, likely ex-soldier who enjoys his job. And I always find it funny, probably too much because they give Paul to him and say, take care of him. Instead, he tortures him, right? So this guy, B.C., was a jerk, right? So we can note that as well. Blue collar Middle-class jailer. So at this church, with this church plant, we've got a wealthy Asian fashionista, a formerly possessed and trafficked slave girl, and a blue-collar Roman jailer. 
right? Three people with wildly different behaviors, worldviews, backgrounds. These people superficially were incompatible. <laughs> and they, with Paul, planted the most healthy church that he ever planted. You know, I can remember at 21, again, I was a mess, <laughs> at the church plant in Newport News in that theater with probably 50 to 60 people and looking around the room and thinking, like, I could probably count on one hand the people I would, like, be doing life with and friends with if it wasn't for Jesus. Anybody else ever been there? Thank you. In Suffolk, they did not affirm that. I thought I was crazy. <laughs> I was like, man, I must have really been a jerk. But it's okay because the church should be a community that never would have formed on its own. Right? Aside from the grace of God, a fashionista, blue-collar jailer, and, and formerly trafficked, demon-possessed girl, they're not going to be rubbing shoulders daily and weekly. But I got the worship team come up. I just close with this question. How will you respond when you're in church and you're called to do life with in a life group or serving alongside your tax collector? Those people are filling the blank. Right? What will you do in those moments? We're doing life as a family, not just people who tolerate each other, but doing life as a family, brothers and sisters, brings you alongside people you probably fundamentally disagree with on many of the hot topics of our day. The one who believes maybe behaves differently than you. Again, may Romans 15, 7 be the verse we take home where it says, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. Why? So that God will get the glory. And again, this word accept is not tolerance. It's not making space for, no, it's, it's life together, family, unity amidst diversity. And just as Paul does here in Romans 15, 7, Jesus tied unity and acceptance amidst Christians to God's glory. Because he's praying for the church in John 17 when he says, I pray that they will be, all be one, just as you and I are one, speaking to God the Father, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. You know, if Jesus is going to be lifted up and the world will know that God sent him to die for them, it's going to take us laying down our mirrors, our proclivity for echo chambers, and coming alongside the diverse family we have here in worship. Recognizing the diversity in the family of faith and the unity that we're called to in the midst of it. Accepting others as Christ has accepted us so that God will be given the glory. We don't have unity due to agreement in all things. We have unity because God's grace has covered all things. We talk all the time throughout our history as a church about heaven now, heaven forever. And it's in the message version of Corinthians where Paul says, God wants to whet our appetites for what we're going to experience in heaven. And again, as we saw in Revelations 4, what we're going to see in heaven is people from all different backgrounds. In the world's terms, superficially incompatible, worshiping into eternity the God who saved us all. And so tonight, we're going to do just that. We're going to praise. We're going to give God glory. And let's praise Jesus, who, thank goodness, didn't subscribe to tribalism or us versus them. Because we in our sin <laughs> drew a line in the sand with God, where we chose us. We chose lesser things. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus didn't see us versus them. He saw me for them. He saw me for each person in here by name. And Jesus, we are going to stand tonight and worship you together. And I pray that you would take the seed of the word tonight and begin to shift perspectives and paradigms and encourage us if we need to be encouraged, challenge us if we need to be challenged, convict us if we need to be convicted. But above all else, Lord God, we leave this place tonight worshiping you.
not just with the songs on our lips, but the, the conversations on our lips as we leave, the interactions we have that are going to paint a picture. May it be a portrait of Jesus. May it be a portrait of heaven with all its diversity and unity amidst differences. Thank you, Jesus, for all you do for us. God, we worship you tonight. And as we go into worship, if you need prayer for anything, the Holy Spirit transcends any sermon or any, any plan. If you need prayer for anything, we have people that would love to pray for you. But let's stand and let's worship and praise Jesus Christ in this place tonight.